We are working our way, uh, or just really beginning to work our way through the book of Daniel. Daniel is in the section of Scripture known as the prophets. There's actually, uh, you can break the prophets down into the major and the minor prophets. Daniel is the last in what's called the major prophet section. And as we began last week, we looked at Daniel chapter 1, only looking at verses 1 and 2. If you'd open your Bibles up again to that section, we're going to be um, just looking a little bit further beyond that. Uh, If you have your Bibles, uh, again, I'd as always encourage you to have them open while I preach. If you don't have one or didn't bring one or don't own one, uh, you can look in the seat in front of you. Underneath, you'll find a Bible there. And if you use that Bible, you'll find our passage on page 737. So last Sunday, again, we, we just looked at the first two verses. And really, the first two verses of, of Daniel just uh, describe kind of in a macro way what happened when the, the, the uh, nation of Judah fell to the nation of Babylon. Israel, at, by this point, had been divided. It divided uh, shortly after uh, King Solomon died, and it divided into two, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And as I mentioned last Sunday, Israel was the more wicked of the two. Neither one was very righteous. Uh, neither one really obeyed uh, and followed through on their commitment to the covenant that they had made with God to obey all that he had commanded them. Uh, But the north, Israel, was far worse. And so in 722 B.C., God sent the nation of Assyria. Assyria was like a wrecking ball, uh, completely went in and decimated uh, Israel, and it was no more. Uh, Scripture says that only Judah remained, and Judah remained for a little over a hundred years, uh, but really was not that much better than Israel. And so eventually, as we saw uh, last week, when we saw what Isaiah prophesied, as we saw today with Habakkuk, God promised that the nation of Babylon would be sent to bring judgment on Judah. When Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king, invaded Judah, he really did it in three stages. Uh, The last stage being what we typically remember. When we think of Nebuchadnezzar invading Jerusalem, we think of him destroying the temple, completely destroying the city, and uh, and leaving uh, ashes in his wake. And that's what happened in 586. But the invasion, if you will, or the exile, began in 605. That was the first stage. And that's the stage that we read in Daniel chapter 1. I'll begin again at the beginning, uh, but we're only going to go down through uh, verse 7. So Daniel chapter 1, 1 through 7. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, 
to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Well, as I mentioned last Sunday, and again we see uh, as I read this text, that the first thing that the book of Daniel zeroes in on, that the king of, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the king of Babylon named Nebuchadnezzar, the first thing that it really zeroes in on are what are called the vessels of the house of God. That was important for Nebuchadnezzar to take because it was symbolic, and Nebuchadnezzar was essentially saying that I and my gods, the gods of the Babylonian, are stronger than yours that I can come in at will, that I am the most powerful man on earth, I can take over your nation, I can take your people, and I can even steal from your God's temple and put it, those vessels, in the house of my gods. But what we saw was that it was really God, the God of Israel, who was sovereign over the whole thing. We saw that phrase, that important phrase, and God gave, and that phrase will continue to pop up throughout chapter one. God gave the vessels, those sacred vessels, into the hands of King Nebuchadnezzar. So all the while he was thinking that he was getting one over on the God of Israel or somehow uh, uh, pushing him back and conquering him, it was the God of Israel all along who was saying, here, take the vessels from the house of God, I give them to you. Well, that was the first thing that was focused upon. But obviously, the main focus of the book of Daniel are the people that are taken captive. And that's what we begin to focus on now. I titled this sermon, Taken Captive, but one of the things that we need to realize is that Nebuchadnezzar, in taking these people captive, were not simply taking their physical bodies captive. That, of course, is important. It's what being taken captive means. But I want to focus on what Nebuchadnezzar was attempting to do, because I think when we look at what he did with these young men, we see that he was taking their entire being captive, or at least trying to. First, we see that, in fact, their bodies were taken captive. Again, obviously, that must be the case. He takes them from the land of Judah and takes them to the land of Babylon. Now, as I mentioned last Sunday, and we have to keep this in mind, Daniel and these boys were teenagers. Scholars think they were anywhere from 13 to 15, probably, when they were taken into captivity. Now imagine that. Imagine your world 
and what you were doing as a 14-year-old, the kind of things that you were engaged in, the kind of things that you were thinking about. And then imagine your world, entire world being upended like this. I don't know what they were doing each day. I don't know what they woke up that day thinking that they were going to do. But in an instant, everything in their world changed at 14. They were taken from their families, from their homes, from their culture, from their friends. They were taken from everything that they knew, taken a thousand miles away, never to see them again. But we have to remember that behind all of this was the sovereign hand of Almighty God. The text focuses in this section on the actions of the king and the actions of Ashpenaz, his eunuch, but we remember that behind and above all of the actions of these human actors is the God of Israel. Again, we will see the phrase repeated, even in reference to Daniel and his friends, and God gave. We will see that he is sovereign over everything that happens to them. That's one of the huge themes in the book of Daniel, is the sovereignty of God over human history. Nebuchadnezzar captured the people of Israel just as he captured the vessels. Both belong to God. We see here that he captured the people of Israel. These were the people that belonged to God. These were the people that God had chosen. These were the people that God put his name upon. Same as the vessels. Nebuchadnezzar took both of them. God gave both of them into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. And what this tells us is, first of all, that God sovereignly plans and allows bad things to happen to his people for his good purposes and good ends. That's sometimes a very difficult thing for us to wrap our minds around. I know it's true for me. I know it's true for a lot of you. I've had conversations with you as your pastor. It can be very difficult when we're going through something very traumatic to understand how God could somehow be involved but ask yourself this question, when you're going through hard times, do you pray to God and ask him why this is happening? If you have, then by your very prayer, you're acknowledging that he's sovereign over it. You wouldn't ask, you don't go up to another human being and say, why are you doing this to me? Unless somehow they, they actively are the ones attacking you. But you do go to God and say, God, I don't understand why this is happening to me. The only reason you would do that is if you know at bottom that God is somehow sovereign over what's going on in your life. I can't imagine what these boys must have felt knowing that God is sovereign over what is happening to them. I mean, I don't know about you, but nothing of this magnitude has happened to me. I mean, the, the, the closest thing would be the death of a loved one. But in terms of being exiled to another country and, and being completely removed from, from everything you've, you hold dear, this is what has happened to these boys. But the other thing that, that we're reminded of when we're reminded that God is sovereign over this 
is that just because we are going through bad things doesn't mean that we cease being God's people. God has not abandoned them. God will not abandon them. God is with them in the exile. We will see that clearly throughout these texts. One Old Testament scholar puts it this way, God will not abandon what is his own. If he has put his name on you, whatever you are going through, he will never abandon you. And we see that he doesn't abandon either the people or the vessels. Both things he keeps safe while in exile, and both things he returns to the promised land. It's interesting when you fast forward 70 years and think about this. Daniel, if he was 14 when he was exiled, he was in Babylon until he was 84 years old. His entire life spent in a foreign land, away from his home and away from everything that he loved. But what we see is that after 70 years, God kept his promise. And in Ezra chapter 1, it says, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, Cyrus the king, when he overtook uh, Babylon and conquered them, he brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and, and placed in the house of his gods And he took them out and he let the exiles that were brought up from Babylonia and returned them and the vessels to Jerusalem. Both things God kept safe while in exile. (coughs) Daniel chapter 1 verse 21, which we'll see next Sunday, says Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus, which means that Daniel saw God keep his promise to return the exiles back to Jerusalem. Now the people taken at the stage were really, it was a relatively small group according to scholars. Again, this was a three-stage invasion. Uh, The second stage, a lot more were taken. But in this first stage, Nebuchadnezzar was really careful to just grab the cream of the crop. We can see here that uh, they're described as of the royal family, literally meaning of the seed of the kingdom, and of the nobility, nobles and statesmen. These were the future leaders of Israel. These were the ones being trained up to be the the future kings and the future governors and whatever else, the, the statesmen there in Israel. Why did Nebuchadnezzar begin with them? Why would he go in and simply take them? Well, I think for two reasons. One, he was trying to demoralize and decimate the nation of Judah. All he really needs to do to demoralize them is is take their best and brightest. And then what's their future look like? But secondly, as any conquering king wants to do, he wants to take the best and brightest for his own kingdom so that they can serve him and and be of benefit to him and and, uh, uh, try to further Babylon's objectives. Now, verse 4 tells us what these people were like that he took. And really, it's a very impressive list. Youths without blemish. That means that Daniel and these friends of his, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were physical specimens. These guys uh, were 
like they're talking, that's what, what it means, that their bodies were flawless, okay? They, they had physical, uh, they were physical specimens bodily, and they were of good appearance, which means that they were handsome as well. They had everything going for them, face and body. But more than that, they weren't just, you know, looked good but didn't, didn't know anything. These guys looked good and knew a lot. They had brains and brawn, if you will. They were skillful in all wisdom. They were endowed with knowledge. They had understanding. They understood learning. Now, something of great importance about this list needs to be discussed. Scholars point out, and I looked up each word in a Hebrew lexicon, and, and that is exactly what I found, that all of these terms uh, that, that focus on intelligence, the wisdom, the knowledge, the learning, all of these kind of hover and somehow have scriptural connotations, which means that Daniel and his friends, prior to being hauled off into exile, spent the first 14 years of their life being trained in the Word of God. They spent the first 14 years of their life being taught about the God of the Bible, being taught about who He is and who they are and who they are in relation to Him, which I think is going to serve a very valuable purpose because when they're hauled off into exile, they're no longer going to be handed Bibles. Nebuchadnezzar is going to do away with anything to do with the God of Israel and replace it, as we will see, with his own gods. And so they're going to have to make it on what they learned for the first 14 years of their life. <coughs> the goal, as we see here, is that they will be groomed ultimately to serve a new king. They were groomed for the first 14 years of their life to serve Yahweh. Now they are going to be reprogrammed to serve Nebuchadnezzar and his gods. We see the last attribute there, competent to stand in the king's palace. That last one, it means that, that they also had pedigree. They also had an upbringing that naturally prepared them to work in high levels of government or work with nobility and kings and that kind of thing. But in order to work with Nebuchadnezzar, they're going to have to agree with Nebuchadnezzar and like Nebuchadnezzar and want to serve Nebuchadnezzar. He's not going to want to have guys that are trying to knife him behind his back. So they need to be reprogrammed to be aligned with total service to Nebuchadnezzar. The goal was to make these guys who had all of this brilliance and all of the good looks and everything else to serve as high-ranking officials in Babylon, but he wanted them to not only be living in Babylon, but he wanted them to be loving Babylon. He wanted them to be loving Babylonian culture and loving Babylonian gods and loving the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar. So again, with all of that against them, it's important and crucial that they were trained early on. Parents, what do you consider to be the most important thing for your children to learn? There's a lot of things that they can learn in this life. 
And believe me, we're, Michelle and I are concerned that our kids learn a lot of things. But as you think about raising your children, what rises to the top? Think about that. What do you focus on throughout the week? What is your main thrust with your children throughout the week? Is it soccer? When you come home from work, dads, you go get the soccer goal out and make sure that you practice until dark and then you eat dinner and then they go to bed? Are you prepping them to take their SATs, getting them tutoring? What would you say is your number one goal? I would suggest that if it hasn't been, you make your number one goal to teach them the God of the Bible, who he is, what his attributes are, who they are, and who they are in relation to him. And believe me, I'm speaking as someone who needs to constantly remind myself of that. Michelle and I were just talking this week, we're not doing that by any means the way we want to be. There's always pressure to pull you away from that instruction. But it's important because as we see here, Nebuchadnezzar not only wanted to take their bodies captive, he also wanted their minds. He wanted their minds. You see what he does here. He enrolls them in essentially the University of Babylon, a three-year university. He wants to, in verse 4, teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Again, think about just the way this is written in the course of Scripture when you look at the, sort of the whole of redemptive history, how devastating this is. As I mentioned last week, when the vessels are taken to the land of Shinar, which we find out, and if you know Genesis, is where the Tower of Babel originated, where rebellion against God originated. Not only were the vessels taken there, but now here God's people are being taken to Babylon to learn the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The Chaldees, Ur of the Chaldees, is exactly where Abraham was taken from. When God found and grabbed Abraham out of paganism, he was living there and steeped in the Chaldeans. And God said, I'm going to take you, Abraham, away from the Chaldees, and I'm going to teach you, if you will, the literature and language of me. And now we have an exact reversal of that. God's people are taken back into the land of the Chaldees, and they are taught all kinds of things in this university. Scholars say it would have included the study of Sumerian and Akkadian. It would have included the study of Aramaic. They're learning different languages. Babylon was, at that time, scholars say, kind of the height of innovation and technology and science. And so what they would have learned would have been astronomy. They would have learned mathematics and medicine. But they also would have learned astrology. They also would have learned omens and magical incantations and sorcery and charms. Apparently, the Babylonians were the best in the world at that. Babylon was the, the height of technological innovation and, uh, and, and, and medical innovation and scientific innovation and the height of superstition at the same time. It's interesting, Herman, Herman Bavink, the, the guy that we're doing the theology group uh, with that uh, was rescheduled, he writes this, 
Christianity and superstition are sworn foes. There is no science, enlightenment, or civilization that can safeguard against superstition. Only the Word of God can protect us from it. If you don't have the Word of God, then though you might have lots of technological advancements and all of these other things, as, as Bobbing says, it can't protect you against superstition. And I think that we live in a culture that demonstrates that. I mean, we live in a culture that really it's constantly innovative and, and we, you know, you go and you, 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 we have all kinds of uh, medical advancements and all kinds of things that you, you look at and say, I, I, I can't even believe they can do that now. Some people now, they'll, they'll tell me, oh, I, I had to get operated on, I had to get my hip replaced. And you say, well, when was that? And they say, oh, three days ago, and they're walking and talking with you. You think, how, did, how in the world did you get a hip replaced? That seems like it would be something that, you know, 100 years ago would have killed you. Well, first of all, you probably wouldn't have been able to do it. But if they did somehow manage to put a new hip in there, maybe you would have died of infection or would have been laid up for six months before you could walk. At the same time, I think we see more and more irrationality and superstition uh, just flourishing everywhere in society. We are a lot like Babylon, and pagan superstition was something that God had condemned in the nation of Israel. So you can imagine what these boys were thinking as they were enrolled in this university. Part of what they were learning, they were probably kind of excited to learn, but part of it was were, were directly were things that God had condemned and said, you will not learn these things in my land. He says, whoever does these things uh, consults a, a, a charmer or a medium or a necromancer, whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. Therefore, you shall not do what the other nations are doing. Don't go to fortune tellers. As for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. So the, the kind of internal struggles that these guys must have had as they're being basically made to write a, a blue book exam talking about how you go and, and, and do these magical incantations. What's interesting is that they didn't fail. You might think, well, because they had all of this struggle, maybe they got C's or D's. Maybe they just completely failed altogether. But no, Scripture says they graduated summa cum laude. And it says that they graduated as straight-A students because God gave them all the wisdom to understand everything that was being taught them. Think about that. How crazy is that? God is giving them the ability to graduate at the top of their class in things that in Israel he called an abomination to him. One of the things that that does for me as I read that is it strengthens my faith. God knew where they were. God knew what they were up against. God's the one that placed them there. God wasn't unaware that they were being forced to learn these things. God gave them the minds to excel in their studies, but to never succumb to them. That was the difference. 
One Old Testament scholar says this, God helped them to understand things that would have been contradictory to what their faith taught them about God. But they needed to know what the Babylonians believed. They didn't need to believe it themselves. I think that is so important for us to navigate this time in our society, especially if you are a a young person going off to college or you're in college or even you're in high school. There are things that you will be taught that align perfectly with our society that go directly against God's word. One of the things you get from this passage is that God can give you the wisdom and the knowledge and the understanding to give the teacher what he believes while not believing it yourself. See, Nebuchadnezzar, he wanted their minds, but he didn't quite capture it. We'll see as, as, as the uh, uh, book of Daniel progresses that he didn't capture them, uh, not fully. He captured their bodies. They did try their best to serve him. But in the end, when it came to directly disobeying God, they drew lines in the sand. I, I was telling the men at the, the, the men's study on Tuesday, uh, when we get to uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, you know, here Nebuchadnezzar is thinking these guys are right on board. You know, hey, they're, they're fully deprogrammed, they're fully reprogrammed, here's my statue, bow down to it. And then here these three guys say, we're not going to bow down. I said, I can picture, you know, Nebuchadnezzar turning to the guy next to him and like backhanding him and saying, I thought you said you broke them. Like, you know, <laughs> and I don't know what happened, sir. I thought they were. <clears throat> <clears throat> he, he didn't just want to capture their bodies and their minds. He wanted to take captive their affections. Look at verse 5. He assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. Now, I would imagine they cried all the way to Babylon. They, after all, are human. But what were they greeted with when they, when they arrived? They were greeted with, essentially, paradise on earth. They were greeted with the capital of the world, towering ziggurats, wealth, luxury, canals, amazing transportation systems. Again, I mentioned one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. One scholar even said that that, uh, they, they think that Babylon may have had some kind of ancient form of air conditioning. You can imagine what they would have seen. And then in addition to that, They were given, Scripture says, a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. Now again, next Sunday we'll see how they deal with that. But they're treated like royalty. Who knows what kind of food the average citizen in Babylon was eating compared to the average citizen in in the land of Judah. I would imagine it was far nicer. But these guys taken out of exile are getting better treatment than the average Babylonian citizen. They're being given uh, royal treatment from the king, from the king's table. This was a great honor, scholars say. Nebuchadnezzar again wanted them to love Babylon. But if you've ever read 1984, you know, know, in the end he, he loves Big Brother because, you know, he's been tortured 
uh, for hours. Nebuchadnezzar wants him to love Babylon not by torture, not by stripping them of luxuries, but by giving them everything they want and could ever need. You know, Satan can use all kinds of various means to damage the faith of God's people. Every Sunday we pray, uh, generally speaking in our pastoral prayer, for the persecuted church around the world. Satan did then, uh, always has throughout history, and does now sometimes torture and bludgeon Christians to make them lose their faith. But many times throughout history, then and now, Satan is just as content to let the luxuries and enticements of this world draw us away from God. He doesn't care. He doesn't care how our faith is ruined. Either one is fine with him. Nebuchadnezzar wanted their affections to turn away from God and towards him. He wanted these boys, I think, to believe that Babylon could give them everything their heart desired. Vanity Fair, that's what he provided for them. The Babylonian gods could provide far better than Yahweh ever could. As far as uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was concerned, as, as we've said before many times, you catch more flies with honey than vinegar. That's what he was doing here. He wanted their affections. And you can imagine 14-year-old boys being presented with this. Again, I don't know how long they wept uh, uh, for, for their home, but after being there long enough and being treated like this, you can imagine the temptation But lastly, and most importantly, he didn't just want their bodies, their minds, or their affections. He wanted to take captive their souls. Verses 6 and 7. Verses 6 and 7 are key because these boys all had Jewish names when they were captured. And you might think, well, they were just given new Babylonian names so that you could communicate with them better. You know, sometimes you'll meet uh, a, a foreign exchange student or something, and you'll say, well, hey, what, what's your name? And, and he'll say, oh, my name is Alex. And you'll say, well, yeah, but don't you have a, like, what's your other name? You know, what, what was your given name? And then he'll, he'll give it, and it's something that's hard to pronounce. And, you know, so then you say, oh, well, then it makes sense why you would go with Alex. I, I prefer that, actually. Uh, no, they, this wasn't simply that. Now, it may have helped, but when you look at their names, their names growing up pointed to the God of Israel. So every time their name was called, something about the God of Israel was a reminder to them. Daniel means God is my judge. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. Mishael, who is like God? Azariah, Yahweh is my helper. They're stripped of those names, and they're given Babylonian names. Belteshazzar, O lady, in parentheses, wife of the god Bel, protect the king. Shadrach, command of Aku, he was the god of the moon. Meshach, who is like Aku? They, they go from uh, Mishael, who is like God, the god of Israel, to Meshach, who is like Aku? Abednego, servant of Nebo. They were specifically given names that highlighted and honored the gods of Babylon. Every time these boys were called, they were reminded 
that their God was dead and that the gods of the Babylonians ruled. The idea was to take them captive in every way possible, body, mind, affections, and soul. And that's what Satan is all about. He wants all of us, every part. First Peter says, be sober-minded, keep watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. It's good for us to be reminded that it is Satan who is our adversary and not our neighbors. That's one of the things that's key about Daniel. Daniel focuses on the exile, and it focuses on the hardships. A lot of it uh, focuses on the hardships that they encountered during the exile. But one of the things we realize when we study Daniel is that they actually got along pretty well during the exile. Daniel served a pagan king, and he served him well. We are living in a nation where I think more and more we are going to have to try to serve bosses and leaders that don't hold to our beliefs. Daniel is a good book to study to give us insight to that. How did Daniel and his friends get along in Babylon? Well, they remembered that it was Satan, not their non-Christian neighbors, if you want to call it, that was their adversary. Ephesians 6, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's important to note that Daniel and his friends, when they arrived in Babylon, how did they last there for 70 years and last so well? Because they didn't do either one of these options. They didn't become fully assimilated, and they didn't become anarchists. They did neither one of those. Daniel and his friends became ambassadors. Ambassadors are citizens of one country living for a time in another. And as ambassadors live in that other country for a time, they strive to be the best citizens of that country while still holding ultimate allegiance to the king of the other country. That's exactly what God called the Israelites to do while in exile. One of the things we forget is Jeremiah 29. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles that I sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's what I want you to do. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. God said, I'm sending you there. Be the best citizens you can be and pray for the country where I'm sending you. This pagan country, this country that 
overtook them, took them away from everything they believed, and ultimately would destroy the temple. God said, pray for that country and be the best citizens you can be, for when it flourishes, so do you. Brothers and sisters, we are also exiles and ambassadors. That's exactly what God calls us. We, like Daniel, are strangers in a strange land. We, like Daniel, are tempted by Satan in every way to be completely taken captive by our society. Satan would love to have us fully assimilate, to be taken captive by the world in body, mind, affections, and soul. He would love for us to become anarchists, to hate our neighbors and fight against them. But we, like Daniel, need to live not as fully assimilated or as anarchists, but as ambassadors, living as the best citizens we can while we are here, always keeping our eye on home. Like Daniel, our exile is only temporary. Our God will not abandon what is his own. How could Daniel and his friends live for 70 years with hope? Because Jeremiah 29 continues. It doesn't end there. It doesn't end, be the best citizens you can be and pray for the place you're, that I sent you. It ends here. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. I will fulfill to you my promise and I will bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Brothers and sisters, we live in exile right now as strangers in a strange land, but we are going home where our citizenship is and where our Lord is. Keep your eye on home. The Lord who sent his son into exile on the cross will not abandon those who are his own. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful again for your word, so thankful for reminding us of what these boys went through. Father, as we uh, study this book, we pray that you would remind us of what it means to have faith in a land of exile, what it means to follow you and trust in you. Father, give us uh, this morning by this word and by this worship service and by this song that we are about to sing encouragement to continue on our way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.